0: Hebrews this morning as we take a brief break from the Gospel of John. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we want to focus this morning on verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter two. Let us read verses fourteen through eighteen. This is the word of God. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." Amen. Let us unite our hearts and pray as we come to the preaching of God's Word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we bow before You this Lord's Day as we do every other Lord's Day, giving You thanks, supreme thanks for the gift of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, light from light, the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God and yet condescended to take upon Himself our flesh that He might redeem those who are in the flesh. Father, thank You for the sacrifice of Your Son. We thank You that He was made like His brethren in order that He might defeat the enemy that we are unable to defeat. That He came to destroy that which would have Taken, taken us into an eternity of judgment. We thank You that He, though He died in weakness, is the victor, the victor and the One who stands in victory over the grave. The One who has conquered sin and death and hell for His people. Father, we pray that this Lord's Day we would meditate upon and glory in the glorious, magnificent reality of the Incarnation, that our God should become man for us, and for our sakes, and for our salvation. Father, we pray this morning for any who are here who are unconverted, and are strangers to the Gospel, who are not trusting in Christ. We pray, work by Your Spirit. Work in them the way that You have worked in us. Bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Open their hearts. Open their eyes. Open their ears, we pray. Cause them to see their desperate need for grace. And cause them to come by faith to Your Son to receive it. We pray that You would draw near to all of us. Encourage Your people. Build Your church. Strengthen us and encourage our faith this day, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I've said it before, one of the potential dangers of quote unquote Christian holidays, if you want to call them that, like Christmas, is that they can present to us the temptation to separate things that the Bible holds inseparably together. Um, For instance, they can subconsciously put us in a rhythm where we think that we only think and sing about the Incarnation around Christmas time, and we only ever think and sing about uh, the Resurrection around Easter time. Right? Now, they don't have to have that effect upon a church, but it is a danger that we need to be careful to guard against. Because the Incarnation, the coming of our Lord Jesus into this world, cannot be properly celebrated apart from the cross and the Resurrection. And the cross and the resurrection cannot be properly separated without understanding the person who came into the world to accomplish that work. Because the birth of Christ, where we behold his person, is what fills the death of Christ with significance, and the death of Christ, his work, is what explains the purpose of his birth. And that's why we always try to make it a point that on Christmas, we don't just sing the traditional Christmas hymns, but alongside Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we also sing there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Because we need to connect the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus in our minds and understand that the manger happened for the purpose of the cross, Jesus did not come into this world as a man merely knowing that it might be a risk that He might die. But rather, He became man in order to die. And while that might be a damper on the world's shallow and sentimental views of the manger, for the Christian, that is the glory of Christmas. We sung in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, born so that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. How does He do all those things? By His death for us. And so the Christian looks at the manger and sees not just mere sentimentality and warm, fuzzy feelings, but the Christian sees divine love and sacrifice. And he sings joy to the world because this little child is the man of sorrows who came as one of us to give his life so that I might have life. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, bring these two together. They connect for us the fact of the incarnation of our Lord, the fact that he came into the world and became like his brothers, and connects that also with the purpose of his incarnation, namely, freeing us from the fear of death through his own death so I just want to consider the passage this morning and walk through it together. Let's begin at verse 14. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Okay. Now, I just want to from the beginning help us get our bearings, make sure we understand who is who in this verse. Who are we, who are we talking about? The He here, the one who He Himself likewise shared in the same, is according to verse 9, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who tastes death for everyone. He's in verse 10 said to be the captain of our salvation through His suffering. So that's who the He is. The children here, when it says, inasmuch as the children sh- shared in fl- flesh and blood, the children here is not speaking of physical children. They are those of whom the writer has just spoken at length about in verse 10. They are the many sons that he brings to glory. If you look at verse 12, the Lord Jesus calls us his brothers. These are those whom God the Father determined to make his sons. That's why we're called children in this passage. We are children of the Father, brothers of the Son. But these children have a problem. Verse 15 they are in bondage to the fear of death. And they are in bondage to the fear of death because of sin taken captive by the devil himself. And very clearly, what we have in this passage from the writer to the Hebrews is we have on the one hand, the one singular champion, Jesus Christ, undertaking for His many destitute people to make them His brothers. You'll notice in verse 16, He calls them the offspring of Abraham. Not merely referring to the physical offspring of Abraham, but as Galatians 3 and 4 and elsewhere makes clear, these are the spiritual offspring of Abraham who would become the people of God through faith in Christ. And so, the writer here says, inasmuch as the children shared in flesh and blood, and that's simply a way of saying they are human. They share in the human nature. Their Redeemer too must share in flesh and blood. Look, at, look down at verse 17. It uses even stronger language. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers. There is a necessity of the incarnation spoken of here in this text. There, there is a, a, a sense in which Christ had to share in the nature of His people. However, we need to be clear that we don't misunderstand this necessity. It doesn't mean, when it says He had to be made like His brothers, it doesn't mean that there was some eternal obligation that God was under in which He had to send His Son in the flesh to save. That would be a mistake if we understood this necessity that way. That would deny God's freedom to have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. God could have, if He had so pleased, He could have in His justice left Adam and all of his posterity to the terrifying penalty of their sin and not saved a single human being. And that would have been perfectly just of God. And Christian, you know that. The incarnation was not obligatory in the sense that God had to do it. And in fact, to give us a reminder of that, the angels are mentioned in verse 16 if you look down. He says that He does not give aid to angels, but rather to the children of Abraham. And brothers and sisters, that's a reminder to us that when Adam fell in the garden and Eve fell, we weren't the only creature who fell. There is also a whole host of angels who were once holy who also rebelled against God. And to display this very point that grace is owed to nobody, God determined not to save a single angel. And instead, the author to Hebrews says He sends a Redeemer to take on flesh and blood to, take, to help the children of Abraham. Matthew Henry says, Christ never designed to be the Savior of the fallen angels, As their tree fell, so it lies and will lie to eternity." When the writer says here he had to be made like his brothers, he means after God in His freedom decreed that He would show mercy to the children of Abraham, it means this is how it had to be accomplished. This is how it had to be done. The Son of God must share in their nature in order to redeem their nature. In order to lift it to the heights of His throne. Now Christian, appreciate that for, the, uh, for a moment. This is Christmas Day. A day in which we particularly probably are thinking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can become so easy for us to let this central truth of our faith become common to us. Listen to the the Nicene Creed and how it captures the the glory of the Incarnation. It begins by describing the pre-incarnate glory and the equality of the Son with the Father. The Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. And then it says this, for us and for our salvation He came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Brothers and sisters, the... Conception of the Lord Jesus Christ and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is no ordinary conception or birth. It it never happened before. It will never be repeated again. The incarnation of Christ, the conception of the Messiah, is nothing less than the eternal Son of God who is eternally with the Father, equal with the Father, coming down to partake of our nature condescending to us in our state. Think about it, Christian. Who of us can say we decided to partake in the human nature? None of us can say that. Because to decide to partake of the human nature, you would have had to first exist to make that decision. But the Savior that the writer to the Hebrews here is describing is One who existed prior to His sharing in flesh and blood, he is the one, according to John one, who was in the beginning with God and was God, and yet chose to come down from heaven for us. You can glance back at chapter one, verse ten of Hebrews, in which the author quotes Psalm one hundred and two and applies it to the Son. In which Psalm one hundred and two says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." You, Lord, speaking of the Son. In the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So Christian, that one described in chapter 1, the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the one who tells the seas its boundary, that one without giving up an iota of his divinity is made like us, humbles himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. As Wesley put it in one of his hymns, our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. What does it mean that He became like us? It means many things. I'm going to mention two here. What does it mean that He became like us? First of all, it means that He became like us constitutionally. And... That's simply a complex way of saying that the human nature He took on Himself was coextensive with our humanity. He, He didn't become one similar to flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood like we are. And He had to be if He was to save us. Elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, the writer will say that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Why? Why can't the blood of animals take away sins? It's because an animal cannot take the place of a man. In order to redeem our entire humanity, Christ had to become like us in every respect without sin. Which means when He came into the world, He assumed a real human body, a human soul, a human mind, human will, human emotions, human limitations. Gregory of Nazianzus said, that which is not assumed by Christ is not healed by Christ. And what he meant by that is that if Christ is only partially like me, if there are, are only some points of overlap and similarity, then Christ can at best only redeem those parts of me which He shares with me. But the problem with that is that I don't need a partial Christ. I need a whole Christ for the whole man and the whole soul because our fall in Adam was a whole fall. And everything that was perverted and tainted by sin, we now need in Christ one who redeems every part. We need one who is like us in every respect, who can live as one of us. Being the perfectly obedient Son that Adam should have been and that I should have been, so that He can then offer up His sinless life as a sacrifice, as one of us for us, bearing the curse of God that we deserve for our sins. This is where where the Christmas card sentimentality of the little baby in the manger falls short of the Gospel. The Incarnation is not just a sentimental moment when God came to give us fuzzy, warm feelings. The Incarnation is good news because it is the beginning of a divine rescue mission. A rescue mission that culminates in the death of the Rescuer. Sinner, if you're here and you're not trusting Christ, and I don't know where you are, you might be just objectively opposed to all things Christian. You might be on the fence. You're not sure what to think about Christ. Either way, if you are not trusting Christ, you are outside of Christ. And you need to understand, you, just like I, you have a debt that you owe to God. God said to Adam, our first father in the garden, Adam, if you obey, you will be blessed forever. And if you disobey, you will be cursed forever. Dying, God said, you shall surely die if you disobey Adam. Because the wages of sin is death. That is what our sin requires God give us, is death. And that is the reason we are born into this world dying, because we are born into this world sinners in Adam. And as our physical bodies deteriorate, slowly making their way towards the grave where we will one day lie, it is a reminder to us day by day that the wrath of God is coming for sinners. And there is a death worse than physical death that will swallow me up if I do not get rid of this burden of sin that is upon my back and upon your back. And the payment of that debt, the removal of that burden of sin from the sinner's back is what the remainder of this passage is about. Picking up again from verse 14 just to keep the flow of the sentence. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same that. okay, That's a very important word. That means... This is the purpose. This is, the, this is the, what the Incarnation was for. That through death, that is His own death, He might destroy Him who had the power of death that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. My friend and Christian, we need to understand this. Just as the birth of the Messiah Was something that will never be repeated again and is in a a class all by itself. So, also, the death of Messiah is a death that accomplished something that the world will never see accomplished again. His was the only death that was not a defeat, but rather victory. Notice how the writer describes his death. It's not described as a life lost, but of death destroyed. For every sinner, we all know this death is a powerful enemy. Death has claim on us because we have sinned. Not so with Christ. Christ stands in a category all by Himself and death has no claim over Christ because sin has no claim over Christ. Jesus says in John 14.30 as He's about to make His way towards Calvary, He says, the ruler of this world is coming. Speaking of the devil. And the very next words out of the Lord Jesus' mouth are He has no claim on Me. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Death had no natural claim upon Christ because He was without sin. He underwent death, not succumbing to it, but He gave Himself to death in order that He might then tear the bars off of death and set the captives free. What does he mean here when he says when he ascribes to the devil the power of death? He says that the son came to destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil. That doesn't mean that the devil possesses the the power of death. Uh, excuse me. It doesn't mean that the devil possesses the power of death ultimately. As though God and the devil are kind of two equal vying Fighting parties kind of dueling it out over who has the power of death. When it says that the devil has the power of death, we should understand it in this sense that the devil has power to wield our sins against us and he accuses us before God in order to hold us captive to the fear of death. The Satan, uh, the devil wields the reality of our sin and the reality of God's condemning justice in order to torment us. That's what the writer's getting at when he speaks of us being freed from a lifetime-long bondage to the fear of death. I want to speak to you again, unbeliever. You might be here this morning and even as we read that verse for the first time, you thought to yourself that you know exactly what the author is talking about here when he talks about those who have been for their whole lifetime subject to bondage of the fear of death, you know that you worry about death and dying. That you have flashes of the things that you have done and your conscience condemns you and you, you tremble at what awaits you on the other side of the grave. And You may not have any clue what to do about it, but you know that you have this sense that there is an inescapable fear of judgment that I just cannot shake. My friend, God has put eternity into our hearts. Your fears are not only understandable, your fears are right and justified if you are outside of Christ. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God. but this is the tidings of comfort and joy that the Gospel brings to sinners. That the Son of God came down and became like us in order to deliver us from bondage to the fear of death. To deliver us from the trembling feeling we get when we think about dying. My friend, there are many ways that people, sinners, try to medicate themselves, so to speak, so that they don't think about the reality of death. They put it out of their mind. They tell themselves all sorts of fanciful things about what they assume awaits them on the other side. But my friend, just like the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant could provide no lasting assurance of the forgiveness of sins, those methods are superficial no matter how you might try to self-medicate and put the thought of death and judgment out of your mind, God has put eternity into our hearts and we cannot escape the reality that there is a Creator with whom we have to do and to whom we will have to give an account and before whom we will stand naked as it were and exposed with all of our sin. My friend, nothing but the gospel of Christ can provide a lasting assurance and a steady assurance of peace with God. Because the gospel of Christ does not just numb the captives from their plight and cause them not to feel fear, he actually brings freedom and sets his people free. We sing that hymn every, well, probably most of the time this time of year. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's a hymn that is praying for the deliverance of Israel to finally come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And what? Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And the refrain is rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. We rejoice because that day has dawned. The day that all the old covenant saints awaited. While the world laid in the darkness of sin and despair, in Satan's dungeon as it were, suddenly the bright light of Christ came into the world a gift of God's grace and kindness to sinners, a rescuer, a deliverer, who came to take away our sin and to free captive Israel. And He did it through His death for us. Bearing our sins, because the only power Satan has over us is unforgiven sin. And if unforgiven sin be taken out of the way, The devil's power of death and his accusations become baseless. But because Christ has come, and because He has done battle with death, because He submitted Himself, the sinless One, the Holy One, and died the death that we deserve, because He became a curse for us, and drank the cup of God's wrath, we now drink the cup of God's mercy. Because Christ came and dealt once for all with my sins at Calvary, my conscience is washed clean by the shed blood of Christ. My sins no longer have to taunt me and shake me with the terrors of God's wrath because I know, yes, I am a sinner, but Jesus paid it all for me. I no longer have to tremble at the thought of dying, but rather I can face death as a Christian knowing that Christ has transformed what was once the pathway into judgment. He has now transformed that as the very pathway into His glorious presence. Christ has taken all the poison out of death. To the point where Paul, we tell this to our children, in 1 Corinthians 15, taunts death in light of the Gospel and in light of the resurrection, and he taunts death, death, where is your sting? Death has no sting for the Christian. If I die, I die safely to Christ. Not only that, but in this life, we have assurance of peace with God. As the devil assails God's people, he is the accuser of the brethren. As he, the devil comes to the Christian and he throws our sins in our face, and he brings on those waves of terror of the thought of death, and he points out to us the weakness of our repentance and the hypocrisy at times of our religion, the Christian doesn't have to pretend like those things aren't true. But rather, the Christian can say to the devil, Devil, I confess all of those things and even more. Even things which you don't know and haven't brought up, I confess. But, Devil, I take you to that place called Calvary where that One hung upon the cross for Me. And I point you to Him who died for Me, my sins upon His shoulders. And I show you, devil, that yes, I am guilty of all you are saying, but my sins are no longer my own. They have been taken by Him. And because He is my priest who died and intercedes at God's right hand, you, Satan, have no hold on me. And so, devil, go satisfy yourself with a look at that man who entered the gloomy dungeon of death for me, but then tore the bars off of death as proof that he was justified before God the Father, and therefore, devil, I too in him am justified before God. Christian, that, that's the assurance the Gospel of Christ gives to the Christian. We can face death with confidence and we can face life and the assailments of the devil with assurance. Because we know that God now looks at me as He looks upon Christ. The Father has been propitiated. And His countenance towards me is now nothing but one of an ever-loving Father. I think it was Luther who said that when the devil comes and tells me what a sinner I am, he gives me great comfort. Because when he says that, I remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to, to save sinners. My friend, you don't, if you're outside of Christ, be honest, you don't have that kind of assurance, do you? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in to be made with, right with God? What, what is it that you think is going to bring your eternal, never dying soul safely into the presence of your Creator? Is it your religion? The mere outward form of religion saves no one. You can be here, you can be here not only on Christmas, you can be here every other Sunday of the year and not be a genuine Christian who's been born from above by the Spirit of God. Is it your good works? What is it about your sin stained works? No matter how. Decent you might think they are compared to other people's works. What is it about those works that make you prefer them to Christ's perfect and impeccable works? The clear teaching of Scripture is there is but one person in this whole world with which God is pleased. And it's not you and it's not me. It is His Son. And heaven is not filled with good people who were squeaky clean, and held their life together in some external sense. Heaven is filled with people who knew their own unrighteousness and fled to the cross of Christ as their only hope. And so, my friend, who's not a Christian, throw your lot in with that group. Throw your lot in with the group that owns with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then would to God that you would cry out with the next breath, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But lastly, as we come to a close, the blessings go even further in verses 17 and 18. The Christian now also possesses Christ forevermore as His faithful and merciful High Priest in things pertaining to God. Look at verse 18 and notice the glorious present tense of the verb is. He writes, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able, present tense, to aid those who are tempted. That's, that's the resurrection and the ascension assumed in that present tense verb. That the one who died and was tempted and suffered... That one has risen and ascended and now is able to give aid to those who are, t- are tempted. And if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that that is in direct contrast to the temporary shadows of the Old Covenant priesthood. In the Old Covenant, when the high priest died, he ceased to be high priest for the people. That was it. The high priest dies, he's replaced by another, on and on and on that went in Israel's history contrasted with that, this new and better covenant built on better promises with a better high priest, He comes into the world and He offers not just the ordinary blood of bulls and goats like everyone else did. He offers His own sinless body and blood dying once for all for the sins of His people. And that's not the end of His ministry like it would have been with all the old covenant priests. When he dies, that was the completion of the first part of his ministry. Having offered himself to death for our sins, he now rises from the dead never to die again and lives forevermore at God's right hand as our priest interceding for His people and mediating for His people between us and God, pleading the merits of His shed blood and life on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, the emphasis of the writer here is for us to feel the reality and meditate upon the reality that Christ, having raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, is not a harsh and unfeeling taskmaster as the devil was. But because he has suffered and has been tempted as we have, We now have an incredibly tender and merciful high priest who is able and willing to give aid to all of his brothers, all the children whom God has given him. He is in heaven as he sits, full of compassion towards his people, full of pity and sorrow at his people's temptations. Right? We we understand that even from our own our own experience. Oftentimes, the only thing that can teach us to be sympathetic towards the sufferings of others and to um, have compassion on others, oftentimes the only thing that really teaches us that is when God in His providence causes us to suffer ourselves. And I can testify of that. I'm sure you can. I can think back on times in my life where I was almost completely unsympathetic and just uncaring towards people whom I should have absolutely been sympathetic towards. And what it took was God causing me to go through something similar to realize I absolutely did not deal with my brother or my sister in love. But here's the point. That's a a merely human level. Here's the point. My suffering is literally nothing compared to Christ's suffering, and thus my level and capacity for compassion is nothing compared to Christ. Christ has entered. When He came into the world, He entered the whole mass of human sorrow. Everything which has ever made men's hearts bleed and their eyes cry. In Christ, the God-man, were gathered every form of pain, every misery, every weariness, every burden, Every satanic temptation that could be assailed towards the human spirit. Never has sorrow plagued such a person. Never has the devil assailed so attentively any person as he did the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he is our victor who resisted to the point of death. And now, as the victor sitting in heaven... There is no suffering soul of His brethren upon earth who can ever say or ever has to say that this thing I have to bear on my own. Because this is something that my Lord Jesus knows nothing of. Brothers and sisters, Sisters, He became like His brethren in every respect, including our sufferings, so that The Christ in heaven has a heart more full of love towards His people than a thousand worlds filled with good men could possibly have. And Christ now bids us as His brothers to come to Him, not as we related to our former taskmaster, the devil, but to come to Him as our gracious elder brother who pities us and presents us before God. Joseph in Genesis is perhaps one of the greatest Old Testament pictures of Christ and His people. Christ is our greater Joseph. You remember Joseph's brothers. Wicked brothers. Selling Joseph into slavery because of jealousy. Putting Joseph through horrific things until God in His providence raises up Joseph in Egypt and in His providence brings all of His brothers to bow down before Joseph. And as they realize who it is that they're bowing down before, and they realize Joseph could rightly have us all executed for what we have done to him, what does Joseph do? Joseph instead weeps with them, and he begs them to know his love for them, and he showers them with good gifts. That is Christ to his people. We are those, like Joseph's brothers, we are those whose sins made the death of our Lord necessary. And He, knowing that in all of its fullness, even more than we know it, willingly undertook for us to do that. And He now looks upon us and says to us that He wants us not to cower before Him as a judge who holds a sword over our neck, but He wants us to relate to Him as our elder brother who cares and loves and pities his brothers. And he says to his people, if I have loved you to the extent of giving my life for you, will I not love you in interceding for you and giving you the aid you need? He says to his people, come to me for grace. Christian, this is the, the good news of the, the manger. The baby that was born was born to die. And not only to die, but to rise and intercede for us to His Father. Christian, worship this Christ. Bow down before this Christ. Love this Christ. Make your life a testimony to this Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to speak to you one final time. Just as we have come to believe in Christ, this same Christ bids you now from heaven through His Word and through the preaching of the Gospel, He bids you come to Him. The Gospel is not only for God's people to build them up and strengthen them. It is that. It also is a divine message to you Before you go into the grave and meet God in judgment, God is saying to you, declare amnesty. And put down the weapons of unbelief and hatred. And come to the light of Christ and receive His mercy and His kindness. My friend, if you're here, you are a sinner. You have a conscience God has given you and He has put eternity into your heart. Try as you might to suppress that. You cannot fully succeed. And the God who made you and will judge you says to you, you can be saved and pardoned from all of your guilt. Past, present, and future. Right now, this day, your sins, though they be as scarlet, they can be washed whiter than snow. Why would you decline Him? Christ holds out to you two hands. One, he holds out to you the white robes of His righteousness, and the other is empty to receive the cloak of your sin. He stands ready to save you. Trust Christ and His death, that conquered death, will become your death. And His life that He now lives to God forevermore will become your life. My prayer to God for you is that this year Christmas would not just be another sentimental thinking about some baby in a manger that you really don't understand why it's such an important thing. But that you would see past that sentimentality and that you would behold in the manger the glory of God's gift to sinners. That you would behold the glory of God's Son who came to destroy death and to rescue His people from sin forevermore. Trust Christ come to Christ and be saved from sin. Let's pray. Father, bless Your Word to our hearts, we pray. Thank You that He who is very God of very God, the beloved Son of Heaven, Father, Your beloved Son from all eternity, that He condescended to become like His brothers in every respect. Being like us in our nature. Becoming like us in our sufferings, in our afflictions. In order that He might, through His suffering, purchase for us eternal life. And that He might be to His people for all eternity that great and gracious High Priest that we need forevermore. Father, write these things on our hearts. We pray that we would serve Christ. Let that be the response of our hearts to, this, to these words. May we be humbled, may we be thankful, and may we respond in such a way that we would live our lives in a way that is a sacrifice to this Christ that we may offer ourselves living sacrifices that are acceptable to You for His sake. Cause us to serve Christ in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our city. We pray that we would have His words and His story upon our lips. That we would not be ashamed of the Gospel. Father, thank you for your mercies to us. Be with us as your people. Work in the hearts of those who do not know you, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.